0: How do you always use those pens these these uniball pens are literally just the greatest thing ever they're so smooth and they're fine tip, so it's like 0.5 works perfectly like it's my absolute favorite pen
1: I think the first time I ever had a UniBall pen to uh, write with was in high school, and I've loved them ever since. Now I I hate paying for them because they're always expensive, but they are really nice pens. Yeah,
0: they're just so smooth, like they just and it it just doesn't run out of ink either. I lose it before I run out of ink every time. So,
1: well, uh, flowing yesterday's debate was even was pretty easy with the UniBall pen. I would have had a lot of trouble if I'd been using a less fine pen. That's for sure.
0: Yep, maybe they'll sponsor us one day.
1: Maybe so. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special summer episode of What's the Res? Uh, we're normally focused on an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate, but during the summer, the uh, National Speech and Debate Association takes a bit of a break from publishing new resolutions. Our other league, the Coolidge Foundation, as uh, part of the connection with the Luddy Debate League, is also uh, currently, they're focusing on a national resolution, but they don't have any new ones yet. So instead of focusing on that, which is our normal kind of episode that we'll get back to uh, in the month of August, this is one of our special summer episodes where we're going to be focusing on debate in public life. So for this episode, uh, Ethan and I both watched last night's Democratic National Convention debate featuring 10 candidates who all want to be the Democratic candidate for president in the 2020 election. And over the next little while, we're going to talk through the candidates uh, uh, give our commentary on what we think happened and uh, hopefully maybe even end with some suggestions as to, of those 10, which are most likely to actually receive the nomination. So welcome to What's the res? I'm
0: so excited for this episode.
1: All right, Ethan, uh, to, let, before we get there, let, let's do a couple uh, housekeeping things. Uh, first, okay. have you watched this kind of debate before?
0: I have never watched any of the presidential debates before. This is my first time and it was quite something was my first reaction, really. So as a competitive
1: debater, how do you feel about this particular kind of debate? Please note, I did actually ask about your feeling. In this case, I wow. do care about your feelings.
0: Just this once?
1: Just this once. Not most of the time, but definitely this once. How do you feel about the presidential debate as a competitive debater?
0: Um, one thing I really liked about it was how strict the judges were with time and telling people not to go over so they really stuck to the schedule i think that it's i feel like it's it's i feel like it's a really good thing and an effective thing to see these candidates debate because you really get to see it's it's almost not how they would be during their presidency because that's always up in the air they people make promises some work some don't but it's a really good time to get to see the personality of all of the different people trying to be the candidate or or fighting for that position And I don't know. It's just, it's really cool to see these people's personalities and see their focuses, what issues they want to focus on more. And there seemed to be a a pretty diverse range of, of primary focus amongst those candidates. Um, so I think it's a good way to gauge personality was my number one thing with that. And it was really interesting to see the different personalities that were debating yesterday or last night. I watched it this morning.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's certainly true. There were a lot of personalities. I, I remember watching these. Uh, my dad's a bit, he's a bit of a political junkie sometimes, and we would watch these things together when I was a kid. But I remember coming home after having, from co- uh, coming home one of the summers from college and uh, watching one of these after having been around actual debaters. And my biggest beef with this is that it's honestly not debate. It's, it's not. It's really not. So yeah. what, I mean, it, 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 there's a sense in which it's debate. I mean, there were, I think, maybe two, maybe three moments where the candidates actually turned and faced each other and addressed what each other had said. But for the most part, it's really it's a bunch of talking points and they're each kind this, of getting getting these things out.
0: Yeah, the goal, I would say the goal of at least in the the speaker's minds in this debate is to win the hearts of the people by showing that they can stand up for ideas, especially when opposed by other people politicians in the area or other politicians within their same party and even outside of their party by roasting Donald Trump consistently throughout the debate, (laughs) but you're right in the fact that it's not actually true debate because there's no constructives, there's barely rebuttals, like just 30-second responses, 10-second responses, but it is a time to win the hearts of the people, and you can see that people are clearly trying to do that during these debates, but it's worth two hours of my time because I do want to see the personalities of, of different people running for, eventually going to run for president, but it's certainly not going to solve any issues.
1: One of the really interesting parts about this whole process, I mean, we, we saw this on the Republican side of things four years ago, as the 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 question of who will become president after President Obama was was really it seemed to bring out anyone and everyone who thought that he had a, he or she had a chance <laughs> of winning seemed to come out of the woodwork. Well, now the same thing has happened on the Democratic sides. I'm fascinated by the comparison, uh, and and I'm sure we'll get into some of that. Uh, as we go. Okay. Uh, the other housekeeping detail I thought we ought to uh, take a moment for is just making clear our own political leanings. If we have any, uh, I'll right. give mine and I'll feed it over your way. Because before we talk about the Democratic Party, we at least ought to kind of place ourselves, I think, on a political spectrum. So our audience, uh, hopefully, hears where we're coming from as we're looking at this. Um, Go for it. I, I count myself as a uh, traditionalist conservative. Uh, I don't really fit on the Republican or Democratic polarity spectrum. Uh, rather, I, I'm more in the tradition of Edmund Burke, Richard Weaver, Russell Kirk, uh, looking at how do we conserve a certain way of living that has been Deemed pretty good by most generations before us. Uh, that that's really one of my primary issues when I'm looking at a looking at politics. But then I would also count myself as something of a realist when it comes to politics. I get pretty antsy when I hear utopian dreams spun out of nowhere. Uh, th- those of the 20th century t- is a is a hundred years of people trying horrific social experiments that usually end in catastrophe. So. All of that being said, I don't really think I fit on, I get pretty grumpy with a lot of the general Republican politics. I'm pretty opposed to most of the party platform issues of the Democratic Party, as I'm sure will come out in, in, in our discussion. Uh, but I don't really place myself on that spectrum, but I think I, I'm really over on the cons- traditionalist side of conservatism. So Ethan, how about you? How would you outline your your political convictions?
0: so currently as a 16 year old who has not been in this world for more than 16 years um and my opinions or my views and beliefs are certainly going to be flexible throughout my college years and and forward but as i learn new things for now i i think i like close to you in the traditional conservative area because i am i do question a lot of things on the democratic side and the republican side but um there were, there were very, very, very few things in the debate last night that I would say I agreed with, or that I, that I really thought should be forwarded in a, in the next presidential administration. So I would, I I would say I'm on the conservative traditional side, because I think that, like you said earlier, there are really good ideas and ways of living that people before have discovered. And there's some things that over time hold their value and can stand the test of time. But, um, yeah, so I'm I'm not going to say I disagree with everything in the debates last night, but I'm I would say that I'm pretty close to you as far as a political leaning goes. Okay. And
1: uh just, just to make sure so our audience is aware, uh, this this episode is probably going to take us into dicier territory than we normally get into. We do try pretty hard on this show to stay away from very personal, convictional, controversial issues. Things like uh, the transgender movement, things like current abortion laws that are being very hot, heatedly debated in our country today. Uh, however... Those were, the, both of those were major portions of the Democratic National Convention's debate last night. So, uh, uh, if any of our listeners happen to be middle schoolers in particular, uh, you should pause this episode, check with your parents, ask them if they're okay with you listening to debate about things that are very controversial, and then if they say yes, come back to our show and enjoy.
0: So I completely agree.
1: All right, Ethan. With that, uh, so uh, my thought was, I uh, did. Did you flow the round or flow the debate?
0: I, I so I did flow. I wrote pretty much everything that everyone said, unless it was like such a like a. I pretty much put everything that everyone said. I think we'll get into some of the other stuff later. Okay. In hindsight. I think one of the best ways to flow it would have been to have all of the names in a row and then all of the issues in a column and like a grid of the main things that everyone said for all of this stuff. But since I had never watched one of these before, I did not know that until after. So I just wrote down people's responses to all of the various issues that were brought up.
1: That works. I, um, I ended up just doing a, I had a sheet of paper for, and labeled it by each candidate. And I tried to check track what interesting things did that candidate say and I tended to number because they sort of went in rounds where they kind of ask one main question of each person and then there was some back and forth and then another main question. So I tried to kind of track it that way. Okay, uh, so I thought one way we could structure this would be just to kind of talk through each of the candidates and their major position points and then maybe at the end we'll kind of compare and contrast and see where we think each of them
0: stand. Does that work? Do you, you think we could go by issue? Maybe we could go from one topic and then see the response to that. I'm I'm not trying to make this hard on you, but that's kind <laughs> yep. of how I tracked it. I said okay, right. the first thing they talked about was free stuff, and then went on <laughs> to everything else. Uh, we could, it was it was, they kind of lumped it all in there too. It was like we're talking about public education, yep. healthcare, and all this stuff. So. If that's easy, well, if that would work for you. You know what? Then... we'll, we'll
1: let, let's try it. We'll try to go kind of more topical and, and right. see who said what. And uh, there are some points I thought were particularly significant we got to get out. Okay. okay. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit those along the way, I'm sure. Okay. So we, of course, had 10 different candidates. Uh, those were Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke, Julian Castro, Tulsi Gabbard, John Delaney, Bill de Blasio, Jay Inslee, Tim Ryan, and Amy Klobuchar, um, and I think we agreed earlier that we'll refer to these folks by their last names on this episode to try and just keep... help
0: keep track a little bit. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we started off with a uh, the first question was directed to Elizabeth Warren, and uh, that question was particularly focused on economic uh, movements and kind of the trust conglomerations. So. Uh, right. Ethan, what's going on with trust conglomerations? Where do different people stand? Where what, What's the concern here? What's, what's happening?
0: The general theme with this issue is that the economy has to work for everyone and the status quo does not work for everyone. And there were a couple claims of most of the wealth being in the top like 1%. It was like 90% of the wealth was owned by the 1% um, in the 20th century, the end of the 20th century. Elizabeth Warren was probably the most Left-leaning on this one, where she she's concerned about having free healthcare, free education, free like all of the government services provided for people, mm-hmm. and she said that she stands close to Bernie Sanders on this issue as far as making everything accessible and paid for by the government. And then they went to Klob- Klob- How do you say her name? Klobuchar. Klobuchar. We'll stick with that. Okay. And she says she admitted that people are having trouble affording college so she focused a little bit more on the, the education part and she wants it to be easier for people to pay loans is kind of where she stood on this issue she just wants student loans to get paid off easier which i'm assuming is through government aid of some sort and o'rourke says the economy again has to work for everyone as well so but he he kind of had an interesting one and he started speaking spanish for the first time he did that, um, uh, they, they there's shift. lots of spanish
1: Ah, uh, there there is we need to get into that in just a second but what i, what I thought was interesting um Beto was, or uh, O'Rourke, let's go with O'Rourke. I keep wanting to call him Beto, because I don't really want to give... a pretty cool last name. Well, I don't really want to give him the dignity of his last name, because he just strikes me as the most empty politician. He was the one on the stage last night with the least amount of substance. He looks good, he's got like a cowboy vibe, but he has nothing to
0: say. (laughs) He is a good speaker, and I uh, His closing wasn't very powerful, it was just kind of a generic, like relatively inspirational kind of thing but um i was always interested to hear what he had to say especially when it came to the foreign relations kind of stuff
1: no that's true we'll get to that uh what i thought was interesting about his question was that they they really the the moderator pressed him to say would you affirm a 70 percent marginal tax rate meaning that completely
0: avoided that
1: completely avoided that and which i I would love to have heard him say, "No, I will not affirm a seventy percent marginal tax rate." That, looking at a income tax that is applied to the people who are at the top margin of uh, of income earners in this country, that seventy percent of their income would then be taken as tax re- as tax revenue. Uh, he then used that. He did eventually say he would he would accomplish all of his goals by raising the corporate income tax to twenty eight percent. And he thought yeah, that would be, uh, quote, fair to everyone. <laughs> I don't know how uh, how that's going to work. I, I would love to have well, seen him actually address the point there.
0: Yeah, so the point, he did completely avoid the point. So this is this is sort of the place in an official debate cross-examination where someone would say, my partner will get to that in the next speech, and then they never do. Um, and then <laughs> he started speaking Spanish, and, and from what I caught from his Spanish, he said that every vote counts, and the economy needs to work for every person. Now, I mean, I don't speak, really speak that good of Spanish, but my whole family does, and they speak it around me, so as far as I can tell, he was kind of repeating the same message for his Spanish listeners in Miami, and which there are a lot of um, Spanish speakers in Miami, so I guess that was an effective tactic to make sure his message gets out to everyone.
1: Well, that was that was interesting, because he did that, and Cory Brooker did that later on, and then, of course, um, uh, Castro. Julian Castro did as well. Now Booker, of course, is African-American, Beto is Caucasian, and Castro is Hispanic. And I I certainly thought it struck a note of authenticity to hear a Hispanic politician speak in Spanish to a Latino audience. That made perfect sense to me. It did not make any sense to me to have O'Rourke or Booker speak in Spanish. That struck me as kind of cheap politicking and campaigning for the Latino vote, as if people can be bribed to give their vote just by speaking their language. And at least in O'Rourke's case, not speaking it that well. He was clearly a white Texan man speaking Spanish. Would Would you agree with that as far as his accent goes, or or no?
0: I would say I would say Brooker's Spanish was worse. Um, but no offense, no offense to him. I'm not trying to roast all these people like, like this, but I, I would say that Castro was, um, was very authentic and he seemed to have, he was a little bit more on the moderate side of some issues than Mm -hmm. a lot of the other politicians up there were. And I think it's, it's good that he was, he kept it to a minimum too. So, um, he, I would say that he came across as the most authentic, but I don't, I don't blame or really. I'm not really that upset that everyone else tried because it it does seem a little bit politically cheap. It almost seems like they're trying to win votes by just simply speaking Spanish. But I think that voters will see through that. And, you know, like not everyone's just going to buy that.
1: I I hope so. I I think that would I I don't think that's going to go as far as they might like. Well, um Now, I want to come back to Warren here in a moment, but I thought um, Mayor de Blasio of New York City got an interesting question, too, that was kind of part of the general economics focus that they opened with. Uh, They asked him about uh, being mayor of the city with the largest gap between top earners and bottom earners, and his question was, what can you do to solve for income inequality? Did you catch what he said on that one? Yeah, he
0: said he... um he had t- pre- taken previous action to raise wages in New York to help people mo- earn more money, and I think he said free public college was another one of those things that he was concerned about. No, he didn't say that it was someone else.
1: No, that was somebody else. His thing was was it a
0: seventy percent tax on the wealthy?
1: Nope, wasn't that either. His was a um, it was schooling related. You're on. You're you're right there. But he was he was talking about free pre kindergarten education.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So free pre-K was
1: was his big thing, along with a $15 minimum wage across the city of New York. And what I thought was really interesting was that he introduced something that uh, we'll have to come back to a few times. Because he introduced it, and then he brought it back again the next time he spoke. He brought up, he was the one person who brought up the current civil war that's brewing at the heart of the Democratic Party. Uh, Ethan, I don't know how how much do you know about the the trajectory of the Democratic Party over the, across the 20th century.
0: Um, just a surface level, really. So okay. not not uh, definitely not as much as you do. So you would be the one to explain this. So I, I got
1: this in part from uh, taking AP U.S. history and then a couple history classes in college, and then talking with my grandpa, who uh, he was a uh, he was he would be considered a blue dog Democrat. Meaning that today we kind of see uh, people generally frame the Republican Party as if they're the party on the right. They're the sort of conservative party and the Democrats are the party sort of on the left. Well, if you go back to the 1960s or so, it's not nearly that liberal conservative divide. Instead, what you have are the Democrats as they really push themselves as the party of the working class. Uh, The the poor people, the uh, party of immigration, the party that is trying to use social policy mechanisms to distribute wealth to people who don't have as much wealth. That's really, that's, Lyndon Johnson was all about that with his Great Leap Forward. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was doing that sort of thing with the welfare welfare state. Well, and of course, the Republican Party was classified then as the party of big business. And so last night... De, Mayor de Blasio was trying to recapture that, and he was trying to talk about, he talked about the Democratic Party must be the party for the working class, and so need to be, the Democratic Party needs to be the party of industrial middle America, they need to be the party of unions, they need to be the party of all of these things, uh, he used the phrase, the Democratic Party must be strong, bold, and progressive. Quote, there's plenty of money, it's just in the wrong hands, end quote. For Mayor Mm. de Blasio, what the Democratic Party should be all about is moving funds around to create more equality, and that needs to benefit the middle, the working class, which I thought is starkly opposite from some of the more radical politicians. On here, who their vision of the Democratic Party is all about the LGBTQ movement. It's all about massively extending abortion rights, and it's also about moving into full blown socialism or De- Bernie Sanders style Democratic socialism.
0: So yeah, what Elizabeth Warren seemed to lie there on that I, um side of the spectrum.
1: I, I think she and I I might put Beto O'Rourke there as well. Um, yeah. And 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 probably Cory Booker. They were the three that struck me as kind of the uh, with uh, they were the three that struck me as being the most radical in that. So what we have at stake in this debate is not just a bunch of policy talking points, but we've also got people with radically different visions of what the Democratic Party
0: is. Yeah, and you know what was really interesting is when Delaney came in for the first time, he was actually an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And now, so he wasn't, I can see him being that, he wasn't actually as far out as um, de Blasio was as, as far as a specific issue of moving funds around was. But he was concerned about job creation and he referred to living wages or the living wage as well and he was he was also concerned about fixing the public education system. So I thought the one of the most interesting things about him was that he was an entrepreneur and his main concern is creating jobs the way we need to do that is by manipulating wages correctly through the government so that more people who have jobs and money will end up in the right hands. So you can see you can hear the undertones of the working class in his speech mm-hmm. but he was also an entrepreneur, which is really cool because and everyone else is talking about raising the the tax rate and uh, now granted entrepreneurs are not always the most wealthy but there are some that are extremely wealthy so coming from him raising the corporate tax would mean taking money from something that he was aspiring towards previously
1: yeah and i i, I actually he was one of the people i most enjoyed i i don't think he has any chance of making it to the to the nomination but he he made the mo- he was one of the people that made the most sense to me uh, Yeah,
0: and he got like no speaking time either right
1: really. right yeah, um, which which maybe I mean I I agree with you about the moderators and they're they're uh, keeping the keeping this debate on time, but at the same time they definitely let the louder personalities push their way to the forefront of that debate uh, rather than really being fair and equitable about speaking time across there. Is John Delaney and Tim Ryan? Uh, neither of them got much speaking time. They were clearly the weak players at this debate.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Tim Ryan was really giving up all of his ground and getting pushed around by everyone else. Now, we did also, the one other question that I got down at least, you don't have to tell
1: me if you got something else. Um, I, we did get another question about, uh, a couple people were asked about how would they handle equal pay and the gender gap uh, if they were president. Any any thoughts Again. you have on, on that one?
0: Oh, yeah. So Castro was one of the biggest speakers on that one. He actually began with his first like, 20, 30 seconds saying that his mom was poor. In the uh, when he was younger, and and that I think was a a personal sort of thing for him, and he wants to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. So I I focus mainly on Castro at least in this category. But he said my mom was poor, and that personally affected me. And I would like to when I get into office I want to pass the Equal Rights Amendment mm-hmm. so that pay can be equal. And and he seemed to be the biggest proponent of fixing the the gender pay gap from what I could tell.
1: Right, and and. In contrast, when we later on in the round, when or not the round, but in the in the debate, uh, later on we got to, he was one of the most specific people when talking about immigration policy. I would have loved to hear the specifics in his fervor for the gender, gender pay, as he did not give us numbers, he didn't give us any concrete details, I would love to hear exactly what he wants to do, and how do you, uh, he had the phrase, equal pay for equal work. And I don't, I don't know how you actually ensure that, or how you control for all the possible variables that are involved there. Uh, but that was, he, yeah, he was very interesting. I thought.
0: I think so. He did give. Okay, I think you're the only one who really wants to know specifics in this debate. These debates are really just a power show. Like, hey, who can stand their ground on these issues? Who can overtalk? And I'm not saying the Republican one's any different. Like, the goal of these debates is to show the public what's up that you can stand up for yourself, you can stand up for your ideas. Talking about Amendment 13-something, 28, maybe 1328, I don't know. Section 1325, yeah. 1325 Mm -hmm. is great because it shows that you're knowledgeable and you probably could do something about the problem, but people don't want to hear it. Like It's not going to make you look good. That's why O'Rourke looked good. That's why Brooker looked good. That's why um, Warren looked good. And even Gabbard, near the end, a little bit, started looking really good. is because... They're the ones pushing people around and pushing their ideas forward. So I think Castro is a really intellectual guy, but unfortunately, no one has time for that because Uh, this is about getting your ideas out quickly, not necessarily pushing all the facts behind them.
1: Well, uh, you're, you're right. I mean, in terms of the public relation and in terms of winning people's votes, you're absolutely right. I actually thought when he focused on in immigration stuff, when he focused on Section 1325 and kept coming back to that and kept wanting other people to publicly promise to, uh, to repeal Section 1325, he was acting a lot like a legislator there, not like an executive. Uh, he, was, he was acting like someone who has been in the weeds of crafting policy and writing bills and getting them through, and that's not what the president is doing or should be doing.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, but I do respect Castro for his knowledge, and I respect him for his ability to to go deep into policy and understand how solutions can be made. So I would give him a big thumbs up.
1: All right. Well, since your
0: Spanish is amazing,
1: well, good, good. You're you're more qualified than I am to judge that. But since you're since you're currently on a Castro fanboy kick, let me ask you a, a controversial question about him. Uh, do you do you support his belief in quote reproductive justice?
0: Oh man, that I think I literally wrote like so many lines under that. Reproductive justice. My first question, this we if we're gonna get any mail after this episode, it's gonna be for what I'm about to say. Do it. Is that reproductive justice? I was like, who is the justice for? Is it is because they're obviously referring to the woman, but I'm like, there's a child in the woman. So like justice to the child, but then it's not a child, but is it a child? At what point is it a child? I'm not doing Ben Shapiro. But I mean, when he said he he said something right before that that was a little bit lighter. I was like, okay, like I expected that from you. Then he's like, we need reproductive justice, and I was like, just okay, man, just throw that phrase out there and let everyone take it how they want to take it because like that needs more explaining and that's just a whole like ethical thing. I took that as more of just an inspirational call to um, empower women to the right to their body. So. It's again like I, it was surprising coming from him because he's the one kind of going into like legislative policy and all of this stuff. But I get that I can see as his his try at making it an emotional appeal and an appeal to a different issue. And I don't think they were actually talking about abortion at the time, so he was trying to switch topics a little bit there. I think
1: no, I think you're right. He was and that that kind of segued into the next thing because. It went from if I track this correctly, it went from Castro to Warren pretty quickly. Um, the thing about that line that caught my eye is that uh, I, I was kind of stumped trying to figure out what exactly this is. And here's my turn to get us some uh, some flame reviews or or some uh, some hate mail in our our inbox. Which if anybody wants to send us to, you can uh, email us at what's the res at gmail.com. Uh, but I'm really confused about what exactly the phrase what he meant when he said a trans woman has the right to an abortion. Does that mean that a man who has undergone surgery to become a woman is biologically able to get pregnant and then can terminate the pregnancy? Or does that mean a woman who has bio- who has undergone surgery or in hormone therapy to become a man, but still has a womb and can bear a child, can get an abortion as a I, I, I'm th- this, I've been turning that one over in my head all morning and I literally, I don't have the pronouns to actually make this make sense. So if, yeah. if, and it's one of the things like, this is a current huge hot button issue. What one of my biggest things that I'm looking for in a candidate, whether on uh, the democratic side, or the Republican side is a candidate who is actually careful with his words, and is actually speaking with clarity. It's one of the reasons I actually I really like John DeLaney and I liked Amy Klobuchar. Neither of them st- stuck their foot in their mouth. I think this was Cory Booker's or I'm not Cory Booker. This was Julian Castro's foot in the mouth moment last night where he just I I I'm stumped as to what exactly that means. But, of course, it then transitioned the conversation to abortion rights, which is yeah. a huge issue right now. So what, what, what stuff did you get down about when they were all asked about abortion rights and
0: such? So just to comment on the last thing that you said really quick. I think the main um, question I had about what Castro said to finish his comments was he said, I believe that a transgender woman should have a right to an abortion or a right to their body but my confusion was not about what does the transgender mean and what way does that go. It was more about, well, if you're arguing for abortion, why doesn't that mean that you're concerned about every woman being able to get an abortion? And I'm sure that's probably inherent within his policy, but I thought it was odd that he was specifically referring to transgender women and if that means that he was opposed other women getting abortions or if he was just not incorporating that. And, you know, like I, I see it as a call to, uh, to tr- I, maybe he was trying to transition to the LGBTQ movement, And abortion to pair them together is probably my thought but again that was not really a confusing ending to his speech
1: it it was a it was it was a common thing in the 90s and into the 2000s for people to kind of show their progressiveness by affirming homosexuality but now that we're in 2019 that's really passe um for everyone on the stage no one on that stage opposes gay marriage um, right. But they the the new line to say that yes I am truly progressive is clearly to affirm transgender everything, and right. so that I, that that I think is part of what he was trying to do. He wanted to kind of go and grab that card and say yep look I'm also not only am I in favor of abortion rights any time uh, any condition I'm in favor of abortion rights for transgender people too, and like snag that card. <laughs>
0: yeah that's I again, I could see that as another poll to that. And I was surprised that gay marriage wasn't talked about very much in that debate at all, but that's one of those things that i'm I currently do not have a stance on as far as running a nation and and keeping people like in relative harmony and trying to, you know, like again, I can see how they would focus on things like gun, you know, gun restrictions, health care, like maybe they'll get to it tomorrow for the second round of debates. who knows? But I was surprised that that didn't come up, but just just to stick with the topic that we're on now, he did transition into abortion with that comment. so then everyone started going off about abortion and then questions were asked about it. so what do you what do you want to say about that there?
1: well, I though I mean, in one sense, I was not at all surprised that that was a topic of conversation. That's that's become huge over the last month. Um, Castro even named the three states that are the current battlegrounds for that. You've got Missouri, yeah, Alabama, Alabama, and Georgia. With the passage of the uh, heartbeat bill in Georgia, and now Olive Hollywood is campaigning against Georgia. Because we all know what we need, and what everyone on that... You know, it's funny, because... Everyone on that stage is uh, you. If you ask them about Donald Trump, they'll many of them would start with saying that he's just a reality TV star, and that's why he's not qualified to be a politician. But when it comes to TV stars, like all the Hollywood people who are opposed to Georgia uh, intervening in national politics, they are all they're over there applauding. They're like really happy about that. But that's yeah, really needed. Ariana
0: Grande donated like a million dollars to Planned Parenthood just a couple months ago.
1: That's, that's insane. So, uh, I mean that, that, I wouldn't surprised. what I was a little bit surprised by, um, that was a, a, again, I'm interested in this and looking at the, his, the change in the democratic party. And this is one of those places where the change became really evident. One of the, um, when back in the 1970s, when Roe, Roe v. Wade was passed, which I think is 1973. I believe um, so yeah. So one of the big phrases at that time was, was that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. The Democratic Party was not saying that abortion should be normal, that it should happen a lot, that, that it should be the sort of badge of honor of freedom. But what we saw last night was, uh, uh, the f- moment that really captured this for me was when uh, Elizabeth Warren was asked the specific question, would you place any limits on abortion? And she then went in two very interesting directions she stated that abortion should include she would include quote everything for a woman
0: and then it was also going to be under free health care as well it was yeah that was yep. that was the popular that was a popular view amongst all, everyone so that wasn't unique to her right either. right either
1: the uh, but the everything for a woman means that she would now I read that I what I think she was implying by that is that she would be opposed to any partial, uh, any late-term abortion bans or partial birth abortion bans. Like, she would allow a, mo- a mother to abort her child at any point.
0: And, That's what I took it as. Yeah.
1: Uh, that, that, that horrifies me. I'll just go on record saying that. The other thing I that I thought yeah. was really interesting uh, is that the other thing that the Democratic Party has trumpeted over the last... Uh, we'll just say 50 years or so, is how good judicial activism is. Because judicial activism, that process of the Supreme Court deciding that a law is or is not constitutional, uh, well, the court has been on the left for the last hundred years or so. In the last three years or two years under President Trump's uh, first term, that has begun to shift uh, where you now have we now have a or where we now have a conservative majority. Well, what I thought was really interesting was that Warren wants to make Roe federal law. So, the very party that has wanted, that has used the court to get what they wanted, now that the court is changing, they're like, oh, look, the Constitution says we should pass laws through the Congress. Let's pass laws through the Congress. It's like they discovered this.
0: It's ridiculous. So ridiculous. First of all, great insight. Like, I never would have caught that because the the point i started relatively following politics is the point i began debate which was what four years ago yeah about four years ago i did and i did know about roe v wade because i watched some videos and read some about it so that's the one thing that i can go back on but as far as everything that you just put the puzzle pieces together for like that makes a lot of sense and i'm i will go out there and say the idea of abortion does horrify me as well and that's, that's one of the things that I would say, personally, I don't agree with with those everybody on the stage. And there's there are a couple of topics I actually heard. I heard some points of agreement between me and a lot of the people there. And I think when we get to those, I'll point that out as well and where I agree with them. But as far as abortion goes, I for me, I disagree with that. And when she was talking about as far as the courts go and making laws and Roe v. Wade federal law... I, that makes me question the process of law because first, so there's the courts, right? And then there's Congress, like who has, who really has the say in, in this creation of laws and the maintaining of laws. And the you know, like obviously the um, executive branch is for law enforcement and then the courts are for, for making sure people, not, not enforcement, but like deciding all of the cases after they've been enforced. And then the Congress is make, made for making laws. Has that changed, and is that going to continue to change? And is the power shift going to be going to different places in government?
1: Well, if you'll if you'll permit a brief detour for constitutional history, that I promise won't be very long. Uh, so yes. so uh, if you've got your phone handy, set it for three minutes. Cause stop me in three minutes if I'm still going. Cause nobody tuned into our podcast today for a for constitutional lecture. But uh, you've asked a really important question. So all right, let's start that. T- let me know when you're going to start the
0: time. Wait, wait, wait. Let me try that again. One second. Hang on. Hang on. We could even, I don't know. Don't cut out this silence. It's kind of funny.
1: (laughs) You think it's funny. I think it sounds unprofessional. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure about that. We'll, we'll see how it sounds.
0: Okay. Siri set timer for three minutes. Okay. Go. All right. So
1: the Constitution is ratified in 1789, and you do have three branches of government. And they generally fit in what you were describing. The president enforces the laws, the legislature makes the laws. Nobody quite knew what the Supreme Court was supposed to do. In the first major constitutional crisis, as uh, a case called Marbury v. Madison, the Supreme Court explained that it had the right of judicial review. It gave itself the privilege of reviewing laws and judging whether or not they were constitutional. That happens very early in the days of the Republic. Now, jump forward to the 20th century, early 20th century. You have a group of judges who embrace a certain understanding of the Constitution that is called a living doctrine. They they embrace the, the living doctrine. It's the idea that the Constitution is a living document, and every generation can interpret it however they see fit, to fit what they currently need. And so then this court begins, and they begin kind of reading the Constitution in such a way that they basically are making laws this is called judicial activism it's judicial legislation it's the judges by process of ruling some laws constitutional and some laws unconstitutional making laws real or making laws false now this really so this is where i i don't know if you've read the constitution or not ethan but there is okay and you'll probably remember there is nothing in the constitution about whether or not a woman can abort a child or atheists right. take your word of choice. Right. What yeah. the what the court does in 1973 to vastly simplify this is they begin by by reading the Constitution to give a strong foundation for a right to privacy, and then they extend that right of privacy to full control over the body, which then means if you have something wrong with your body you don't like, you have the ability to have it medically removed. Ergo, abortion is now legal. Now what that then does that asserts that the asserts that the court has the highest power and now over in recent years what we then have is this constant back and forth where at some points congress claims to be the most significant branch at other points the court claims to be the most significant branch what we had going on last night and what we will con- what i suspect will happen again tonight and will be a continual deal uh, this was a huge part of president trump being elected Because ultimately, uh, this comes down to who do you appoint to the Supreme Court. If you appoint conservative judges who read the Constitution with, uh, this one's called, with the framer's intent as their method of interpretation. Well, then, we generally know what to expect from those guys. If you r- appoint people to the Supreme Court with a living doctrine, it's how you get things like the Obergefell decision 2015, where you have the decision that uh, homosexual marriage is legal and is actually endorsed by the Constitution, which the Constitution says nothing about marriage. <laughs> uh, it's not in there. but So, yeah... So this all comes down to like which one is which branch is more important. And what strikes me as absolutely fascinating is that we have the Democratic Party, now that they're losing control of the court, they're flipping to recover a much stronger view of the legislative process.
0: Yeah, I that last point that you made about homosexual marriage to really spark this thought. I think I think the power lies in Congress, and it's Congress's job to make the laws according to the Constitution. I think that's where the power should be. And then when you have a dispute as to whether or not a certain case, like so a Supreme Court case, is within the Constitution or within the law and perhaps amendments needs to be made, that's what the court is for. So I think this, I, I would disagree with the the living doctrine sort of idea where you can extend things in all of these different avenues because there is, there is an element of the spirit of the law too and the intent of how the law was supposed to be interpreted. And although it's not written down explicitly, I think it can be rationally derived at least. And I think we ought to make an episode on conservatism as well and what things we think should be conserved over time and what things are oh. just special that should be kept in traditional but that's for another time. But that, was that is for another that time.
1: Here. That's that's also what my class this summer was all about with reading really? Russell Kirk and spending three days at his house in Michigan talking about that, going to his tombstone and just just seeing all of these things from his life. And anyway, that that's we could totally do an episode about that, but we need to we need to think that one through pretty carefully. Let's let's try and get back on track because we've been off track right. for. What do you a want to talk bit. about? Guns? Let's go to guns. I think that's the next big topic I have down. What's What do all these candidates think about guns, Ethan?
0: Uh, we need less of them. <laughs> and who, we need to know... One, one guy... Um, this was after they switched moderators, I believe. Does the federal government have the right to take current guns on the streets, off the streets? Mm-hmm. Was a, the biggest question. So... And Elizabeth, sorry, was it? Hang on.
1: Yeah, that was Elizabeth Warren. That's right. Okay,
0: Elizabeth Warren was beating around the bush heavily on this one because I don't (laughs) think she wanted to mess with the Second Amendment here. But what she was essentially saying was that, yes, the federal government, we need to protect our children, was the last word that she said, needs to take weapons off the streets. And I think it was O'Rourke that made the the analogy to, like, what if someone got shot in your backyard or... um, not necessarily a school, but he was talking, it may have been him, may have been someone else talking about all these different places where these acts of violence can happen. Seven children a day will die because of gun violence in various cities. Um, So that was really interesting. But the main theme there was that government does, or the question was, does the government have the power to take guns that are on the streets, off the streets? And one one person asked a really good question to O'Rourke and they said, what would you do if there was a voter with a voting issue right now? They wanted to go Democrat, but the one thing that they would stop them from going Democrat was that you would take their guns away. What would you say to that person? And that was one of the best questions, I think, that was asked during this whole time because it, you're talking about the eyes of the voter here. Mm-hmm. And what would you say to the one person when, when that you want to secure their position but they don't agree with you at this one point?
1: And I know that question was focused on people in Texas, but even here in North Carolina, I've met people like that. I mean, I've I've met real people that they're they might side with the Democratic Party on a ton of social and economic issues, but they really also like having their guns. Um, that that's a big deal. So I we we I was and I got down. O'Rourke kind of he meandered on his answer to that one. He told some stories and he told us yeah. that we need to be led by the youth from Parkland, Florida. But I I was not at all convinced by his
0: answer. Were you? I have a question mark next to his answer, and I, I have very few question marks on my flow. I was confused, and he didn't seem to go very straightforward. But um, yeah. So O'Rourke's... Everyone else had some really like they really talked a lot. Brooker especially. He, Brooker I, he, Brooker always began every single answer by "I've seen blank in my neighborhood." Was his intro? Which and in this yeah. case. He's, he recounted a story about his neighbor being shot down by an assault rifle and he hears gunshots on a weekly basis in his neighborhood uh, or a, a regular basis, I think. And he said something really cool. He said, faith, what was it? He quoted something. He, he said, did. Like, faith he, without he, works is dead. He right. said, faith, faith without works is dead. So I, that I wrote down and made sure to quote,
1: which is um, a, that's a passage from the book of James in the new Testament and and Booker is uh I mean, that was...
0: I knew you would know where that's from.
1: If um, it's, it's a very famous passage, but if that was... We talked about other politicians making plays for, for groups of people's votes. I think that was Booker making a play for the Christian vote. And he wanted to get the Christian vote by citing a bit of scripture out of context. Because what that, that, what that is actually talking about is a very nuanced understanding of the relationship between deeds and beliefs that you hold and the way that your deeds and your beliefs are connected. The book of James is not talking about U.S. gun policy. Booker made it, he connected the book of James to U.S. gun policy in, a, in, a, in an attempt to get out the Christian vote and, and somehow say, ah, oh, I'm a Christian, see, look, I can quote the Bible, therefore vote for me. It was just his way of, I think suckering people's vote, but I
0: mean, at the same time, I want to be
1: fair to him because I thought that was one of his strongest segments on this whole bit. And the ability to, and he focused his comments on the automatic guns rather than on another, on, on a different. So, and he was able to make very effective use and very rational use of that phrase weapons of war in contrast to hunting or security or some other kind of firearm.
0: And he said, so I'm going to say a couple things here. One, when people like the speaking Spanish and the, the Christian quote, I know that I'm not, I know you hate the word triggers, but I, I know that triggers you a little bit, at least. And um, for me, I just think it's like, I'll just shrug my shoulders at that. I'm like, let people do what they will. Like I can waste my energy on better things, but and worrying about like what they're saying. One of the things, so Brooker, let's take note that he also said, this is not policy. This is personal. So that was a really interesting quote. That was one of the ones I really made sure to write down from him. Castro was all about common sense gun reform, and he said he said something about that we need social and emotional counseling in all schools because ninety percent of the shooters in schools are actually kids that go to that school. So what we need to do is actually have not a gun or not necessarily directly at guns reform, but we need educational reform to make sure we're recruiting the correct. Adults and individuals within the public education Wait, system to I got counsel the, these students.
1: I got that as Tim Ryan. Are you sure that was Castro?
0: It I it, pro- it could have been Tim Ryan. My flow is kind of messy, but it's it's th- under Castro for me. But I think you're probably right.
1: I think that's Tim Ryan. But but go on, because you're 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 right. I mean, he had that whole section about uh, reform around trauma based education. Was the phrase I got for him?
0: Oh man. Okay. So this was Tim Ryan, and I'm gonna say this now. I have. I have a slight beef with Tim Ryan right now. I, I put quote, sorry, a colon. So I put the person's name in a colon and then what they said afterwards. I could not even remember his name. So I just put a <laughs> colon. And Castro was up, one up from the list from that. I really don't like Tim Ryan because he doesn't hold his ground. Yes, this was a strong point. Like Emotional counseling in school is important. And he, I think his statistic is pretty interesting but I could not remember who he was because he would not stand his ground and stand up for what he believed in. And he was getting harassed by all these other people. Like, stand up, man. Like, don't let him shut you down.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I I, I agree. I, I was kind of relying on the... Uh... You know how NBC would put the names of each speaker up after Me too. I was I, was, so I had to them. rely on those cuz I had so much trouble remembering him, Jay Inslee and John Delaney. I just those were the three most forgettable people on this debate for me.
0: I would agree. Yeah, the people who don't stand up for themselves are lost in the first present in the first debate and I really don't think they have a chance. If you can't remember them from 2 hours on on live television, you're not going to remember them when they show up on your ballot.
1: Woo. That's a that that's a good quote. That was uh, fire
0: right there. That was it. That was
1: it. Okay, well, I mean, there, are Yeah, I thought the. Um, yeah, I think we've said everything we really need to say about the guns issue. I mean, they tossed it around. There was some commemoration of the uh, Parkland, uh, the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, and and lots of evoking of let the youth lead us. Um. Oh, there we go. Um,
0: yeah, wait, do you do you want to? You like analogies, right? So. <laughs> Oh, um, no, where are we going? <laughs> oh, Brooke, we're going to use Brooker's analogy here. She said, if you need a license for a car, you need a license for a gun. What do you think? Uh, Go for it. Do your logic. I'm, well, thing. I'm going
1: to have some conservative friends who don't like me if they actually listen to this show. That's all right. I'm um, I'm. I'm honestly, that made a lot of sense to me. Uh, that, that I
0: think, you know, gun control was one of those things I was like, you know, School shootings are are definitely a trend that's happening far more now than before. Universal background checks doesn't now, sound I, like I, a I'm gonna pause
1: you there because there's I've seen dis, I've seen a lot of disagreement about that statement. Just because I think part of the big part about school shootings that hits us a lot more now. Is that we all know about them, and we have instantaneous news feeds that are filled so with those. As opposed to these were more
0: common back then as well. Is what you're well, saying. Well, what
1: I'm saying is that the rate. So I was looking at one article, and I can I can find this, and maybe we'll put it on our website. Uh, what yeah, www the uh, We'll we'll put that on there. Um, but uh, across the 1970s and the 2000s, the rate of gun violence in schools is relatively steady. What changes is social media. And now we can get Twitter feeds. We can get video footage from kids who are cowering in schools. Now, what I thought was one of the things I thought was really interesting about that discussion, because they kind of paired that with schools together. There was a really interesting article on The Federalist a few months back about just how unnatural it is to gather thousands of teenagers together, shove them into buildings, and then make them live in these really rigid, tight patterns. 50 minute bells, 2 minute breaks between bells, bathrooms and so on, locker space and all that. Well, and that the problem is the more people you shove into that system, the more psycho uh, psychological pressure is placed on the people in that system. So the answer here is not well we need to hire a counselor. The answer is you need to have maybe 500 students in a school instead of 2000. But it's way cheaper to put 2000 students into a school than it is to have A school maxed out at 500 students, for example, for easy round numbers. So I thought it was really interesting. All of these guys, their solution, their solutions also focused entirely on systemic answers to the guns rather than how do we somehow deal with the fact that there's a person who made this choice.
0: I think, so I actually did not, I I didn't even think about the fact that now that we have more media, these things are more prevalent, but as far as trends over time was talking, I was talking about like way further back, like maybe, you know, late 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s. You don't have public schools in the
1: late 1800s.
0: I can't hear you. Sorry, You You don't
1: have public schools. You don't have schools to have gun violence in.
0: You still have shootings in those years.
1: Well, yeah, but we're talking about dueling, and we're talking about wars, and we're talking about crime and homicide. We're not talking about going into a school building and shooting people.
0: You know, I'm talking about the question that was asked to Elizabeth Warren where she's saying guns on the streets. He's saying oh, there's see. a federal government. So I'm – the. while you're, you're right, there is – it actually did get to war later. There was two main parts of argumentation here. It's guns off the streets and what are we going to do about school shootings? And I would question. This is where I would question the logic of how many people in a school relating to psychological pressure and everything. I think it definitely could have some weight to it, but I would definitely want to look into that more before I I bought that completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and as again, hiring hiring school counselors um, that didn't he didn't give any evidence of that. I I don't even know how you would give evidence of that working because i don't know just it's gun control like guns are a difficult thing i guess like that was a hard issue and i'm impressed by everyone at least bringing something to the table sure i'm confused i'm I'm very confused (laughs) honestly about gun control but i at surface level i don't think universal background checks are a terrible idea um it's it's not as far out there as some of the other things i heard talked about at least sure and um I'm just going to end it at school shootings are a very sad and unfortunate thing, and I hope that eventually we find something to do about it. Mm. Is where I'm going to leave that.
1: That those sound that sounds like wisdom to me. Well, let let's shift to maybe a more heart wrenching uh, part of last night's debate. Uh, of course, uh, yesterday one of the images circulating across the internet was of the uh, death of uh, uh, I'm not, I'm a. A mother and a child. A father and a child. Was, uh, and Oscar child. and Valeria. But you got uh, so you got them both dying as part of the uh, of the uh, trying to cross the river, and that was the context in which the immigration discussion was held. So Ethan, what 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 did they say? What did people have to say about immigration law?
0: So I think that it was good that it was brought up in that context because it's showing that for anybody, at least in the audience, that immigration is on the low of the priority list. This shows that this is still a hot topic. And things are happening at the border. We want to hear what these candidates have or these people have to say about it. As far as immigration goes, yes, I completely agree with the fact that and I even use this evidence, the same evidence that I think Elizabeth Warren or um, one of the Kloba, Klobuchar, I still a, Klobuchar, all right. I'll need to work on that. Said, and I think it was her in her speech, said that like, or maybe Elizabeth Warren, 70% of Fortune 500 company owners are are immigrants. I mean, I am 100% with this point. Immigrants are like, in America, immigrants do amazing things in America. There are very intelligent immigrants that run our Fortune 500 companies. I mean, they are phenomenal as far as boosting our economy goes. Letting people in at the border, arbitrarily letting them flood in, is not, like, for how systematic people in the Democratic Party tend to be, this doesn't seem as systematic of an approach to just let people in. And they're very concerned about these people's health at the border. But when you don't, I think legal immigration should probably be a little bit easier because I have heard how difficult the process is. I've seen naturalization ceremonies um, at the Coolidge Foundation. They have those every year. And it's a beautiful thing when someone becomes a legal citizen But I've heard these people talk about what they've had to do. And it's been very difficult to become. So I almost can see why these people are crossing the border illegally because it's easier. But it doesn't people crossing the border illegally and letting opening the border more doesn't let America take care of these people like it should. And it's it's kind of rushing these people in and we can't fulfill our responsibility to new citizens as effectively if they're coming in and not documenting themselves as members of the United States of America. That's where I stand
1: on that. Well, that that I yeah those 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 thoughts make a lot of sense. I think uh, I was fascinated by Cast, uh, Castro's plan. Uh, so his first step was to he was going to get rid of President Trump's zero tolerance policy and the metering policy, and uh, he wanted uh, he had two points I thought that really stuck out to me. Uh, one of those was he said we need a Marshall Plan for certain countries of Latin America. Meaning that we need to invest in build, helping these countries build their own infrastructure. That was the theory at the end of World War II. Since we, the United States, had helped bomb uh, Europe, uh, or destroy Europe, then we needed to help rebuild Europe so that the people would have functioning economies. Um, now, what I thought was really interesting about that is that the Marshall Plan actually, because I started digging into this a few years ago for one of our debate cases, The Marshall Plan was a very tiny part of the rebuilding efforts in Europe. It was not actually very effective. It was an enormous drain on U.S. finances, but it was not terribly effective. But That's what he's calling for. More interesting than that, and this, honestly, this makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know how to reconcile what they're saying with the actual needs of the people who live in border states. So I don't know how to reconcile these two tensions, but this makes a ton of sense. He uh, Castro phrased it as not criminalizing desperation, and that sort of opened up a a sequence where people talked about how crossing the border illegally needs to be counted as a civil offense rather than a criminal offense. And what that does in terms of the the law is that puts it in terms of uh, that that changes the that changes the punishment that changes the court system that it's handled by, and at least based on what they were saying, it that would stop the uh, separation of parents and their children. Uh, and oh my goodness, I, I don't, Ethan, have you seen any of the stories this week about children not having toothbrushes yes. or clean underwear in these detention centers or yes. even diapers? I mean, it's it's awful
0: yeah o'rourke was really heavy on so as as i expected too so first of all castro was the genius on this issue if you want to talk immigration you go to castro he knows his facts he was a legislator a legislator and i mean he knows what he's talking about booker and booker said the situation is unacceptable and he was one of the first ones to speak on the issue and o'rourke said we don't need to detain people at the border he said we need to rewrite immigration in our own image is a quote that i got from him there i think that that everyone's going in the completely wrong direction with this. I am in support of immigration and legal like legal immigration. I again stand with um with the people who say that immigrants make up our economy and are strong are important part of our economy and I I like to think of things kind of from a more overview sort of point of view, like a philosophical almost, but I'm not going to go too crazy on that. These are people. And I understand that the situation in Mexico is not what they want it to be. That's why they're coming over in the first place. And America is 100 percent a place for them to come to build a better life for themselves under the systems and the, you know the capitalism we have here, the systems we put in place there is something truly special about america the freedom that we have the constitution that i can see is how attractive it is to people outside of america and how they want to come here and we would be more than happy to have these people here but we have like opening borders is going to make the situation worse like we have to be able to take care of these people i mean we're taking care of in america if we needed food stamps food stamps exist if we needed you know welfare for certain things retirement plans all of these things like it's we're doing more harm to immigrants by just letting them in and not taking care of them with the obligation that we have to do so, if they're not documented. So I'm I'm for taking care of immigrants and allowing people to build a better life for themselves here, but doing it legally allows us to take care of them and and it, we wouldn't have as many of the situations with people in in dirty diapers at the border or get people getting sick and children being separated and all this stuff. So I don't know. This was just the one that I really thought about a lot and I it really. I, it really hit the human aspect of it for me as far as these are real people wanting to come in and seek a better life. So we need to do something about it. So this is one of the ones I feel most strongly about.
1: Well, I, I, I'm glad you do. It's an important issue. And uh, I, I suspect we might see a public forum resolution uh, in 2019, 2020 dealing with immigration if it continues to be uh, a, a huge in a huge uproar. I agree. Uh, well, okay, I think we're... I'm watching our time and we're we're getting to the we're getting to be a lengthy episode. So let's see if we can start wrapping this up. I think should we go to
0: Iran? Oh, I mean I we have do we, have do we need to go deal. to
1: Iran? Do they do they did they say I didn't really get anything any important commentary about Iran? Okay. Plus, do you have anything I'm, you wanna say I'll about give Iran? A
0: quick overview. The things we have not hit yet is um, climate change. They did talk about the Iran deal, and we have not talked about um, pharmaceuticals. Oh, that's and true. Uh, which is something that I really would do want to get to in a second, and opioid crisis, which go we should t- maybe Let's we should do pharmaceuticals together. and well, opioid together.
1: Then, really, the impression I got from all of them was that the the Iran deal was a platform for each of them to say that President Trump has screwed this up one way or another, and that most of them would go back to the twenty fifteen Iran deal. A few of them would not, and nobody wants to go to war with Iran was kind of the impression. Did you did you see anything more in the
0: Iran discussion? One person, I think it was my favorite, Tim Ryan. I'm pretty sure he said, he didn't say go to war, but he said we need to engage with the situation. And um, and Gabbard did not like that. And she she was a member of the military. She was all for getting our troops out of Afghanistan, which is great. Right. But he, he seemed to be generally opposed to her view. But in, in general, I also really like how they made people raise hands. That was really good because only two of the people up there would actually take government health insurance over private health insurance. So, And a lot of them were still for having private health insurance.
1: Oh, but man. as far as the
0: Iran deal goes, they want to sign back to the original deal. And President Trump, yes, they were all saying that he pretty much screwed it all up.
1: Oh, and we do need to briefly, at least briefly mention that the health insurance plans was a big part of last night's debate. We kind of skipped that. Yeah. Uh, that there was the, the question that you were just referring to was uh, how many of people on the stage would agree with Bernie Sanders Medicare for all plan and those two were Elizabeth Warren and I think Booker
0: it was the New York go- no it was no, the New York de Blasio
1: go- okay. uh, yeah yes. but it,
0: that was not the that wasn't the question that was um, the question was would you personally switch your private health insurance plan for a government insurance plan so like would you would you as a it's, it wasn't? Are you sure? I, I am sure, sure about an this one.
1: The, so the question, the policy under consideration was going to, <clears throat> the policy under consideration was going to shut down all private health insurance companies that exist. And then there would be one, one government issued health care plan for everybody. Everybody would be on Medicare. And And almost
0: everyone was against that.
1: Right, except uh, Bill de Blasio and Elizabeth Warren are both signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. Everybody else had some version of, uh, this is another place where I thought, uh, oh, which, which guy was it? Uh, John Delaney made a lot of sense. He wanted to he his phrase was keep what is working, fix what is broken. He wanted good. he wanted an option to buy private insurance. Establish your big nationwide federal program, that's fine, but give people the option to purchase private insurance.
0: That made a lot of sense. He should have had more speaking time. He seemed like a pretty reasonable person to me.
1: He did. He and Amy Klobuchar were I think the two most moderate people on the stage last night. Possibly with Tim Ryan as a third. But. Tim
0: Ryan didn't talk at all and <laughs> didn't stand up for himself.
1: But when he did, that one moment you mentioned with him and uh, oh, yes. Gabbard, those were—they were both ready to go to blows over uh, Afghanistan. They had a really interesting exchange about. Um, the Taliban and Al Qaeda, and which one was yeah. responsible for 9-11. That was really fun to watch.
0: And he lost because she was a mil- member of the military for like over a decade, I think it said. But he and also
1: had been on the he'd been on a the foreign foreign affairs committee or a a congressional committee that oversaw those, so he he knew what he was talking about.
0: So I think Gabber definitely won the brawl over who gets to talk because she just kept on talking and talking over him, and eventually he just gave up. Yep.
1: Up. Okay, well, let's get to big pharma. What What was going on with big pharma in last night's everyone,
0: debate? Basically, everyone was for, I think, fixing prices on pharmaceuticals so that they're affordable and that basically, especially Elizabeth Warren spoke mostly on this point, pharmaceutical companies like drugs are too expensive and Donald Trump has done a horrible job of making sure that everyone gets access to these. And under his administration, drugs have actually gotten more expensive. And this was... This was one of the areas that I don't know a lot about, but from what I've heard, I, I think it's a, okay. One thing that was said about the opioid crisis, they talked about it for like five minutes was that it's the pharmaceuticals company's fault that people are addicted to drugs. I don't think that's true. Um, and as far as the drugs being too expensive, I'm not too knowledgeable on the subject, but I think it's very concerning that there's the potential that, that medication can't get into the hands of people that need it. And, um, if there is a truly a true monopoly over pharmaceuticals that that should be controlled to some degree and because monopolies i'm against monopolies like pure monopolies of one company having control over everything but as far as what degree do pharmaceutical companies have complete control over pricing because i know there's a whole bunch of like property rights issues here you know and i mean it's just it's a really confusing place but i'm concerned about Medication getting to people who that need it, and what's the best way to go about doing that is
1: sure. And it's, I mean, it's one of the places where I think uh, uh, the Democratic Party has done a great job in locking down a bunch of issues that speak immediately to heartstrings, and this is one of them. Uh, because when I hear when I hear people talk about expensive bills. I mean, I can easily think of my grandparents who are on several medications and if their medications are unavailable, uh, they probably, they would be in a lot of trouble health wise. Yeah. Now, or, or you got people with uh, diabetes that literally their lives depend on a daily shot of insulin.
0: I, I saw something on the news about people crossing the border to buy insulin. Did you see this?
1: I didn't see that. That's, that,
0: that's. I saw it somewhere. Um, I don't remember where I saw it, but. It was that people are people cross the border to buy insulin, I guess, because it's too expensive. I've seen, I've
1: heard of that come from Canada to the United States, because yeah. Canada has a lot more socialized medicine, and sometimes there are shortages. But one thing, I'll, I'll at least play devil's advocate for a moment, and I'll stick up for Big Pharma, because um, because last right. night uh, it was like Big Pharma was a big dead horse that everybody wanted to kick. I mean, they were yeah. kicking it. So yeah, um, so we, yeah, let's hear it. So the the the. The trick is, and I, I, this at least is how I've heard this articulated, um, I've got a couple friends who work in pharmaceuticals, and this I think is how they would articulate this. Part of what you have going on in a, with a pharmaceutical company is you have decades of research and development, and then you have extensive trials, and then you have finally that comes to market. And, but in order for a new kind of medicine to come to market, it has to go through this really lengthy process. It has to pass all of the science. It has to pass through the, uh, the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration. Um, it has to, and then it has to, uh, you've, you've heard the commercials where someone's saying, you know, if you have really long brown hair and you'd like to buy our new brown hair shortening pill, ask your doctor first. It might give you a bajillion side effects. All of that is governed by specific laws. So the argument here, at least, is that the pharmaceutical company is conducting all of this research, all of these trials, all of this work as an investment. And then the sale of the product that they have created is there, gives them the return on the investment. Now, what... No one on that stage last night wanted to talk about was the fact that the United States of America actually has, we are the global center for medical research and advancement in producing new medicines. One of the reasons that we are that is because we have a free market where company A can spend $10 million in developing a better cold medicine than NyQuil. And then they can spend fifteen million dollars on an advertising campaign, and they can sell their new pill for and, and make fifty million dollars in two years. And they can do all of that, and and really, if if people want it, they will buy it. Now, what you also have tied in here is a you have an ethical quandary. We have people today. This is become and this is becoming an, a huge issue for wealth, welfare stuff. People are living longer than they ever have before. They're outliving their retirement funds because we now have the medical capacity for them to stay alive. So the ethical question that's bound in here, the folks on the stage last night are assuming the answer is one way. A free market economist is going to answer it very differently. But the question at hand is, if your medicine would keep someone alive, are you ethically obligated to make sure they have access to that medicine? A free market economist would say, nope, not unless they can pay for it because the company owns it, the company invested in it, the company created it. Whatever conditions the company sets on the sale of that good, that company may do. Well, our folks on the stage last night are going to say, yes, you have an ethical obligation to make sure that that person can get your medicine. And so because of that, they're then (laughs) going to say, we need to have a cap on the price of medicine. Now, the one last piece of this, and I'm going to turn it back your way because I can see you want to, you want to respond to some of this, um, yeah. is that the people who would be writing the legislation governing this and setting the prices, well, they're congressmen and congresswomen. They're senators. They're not going to be people with any kind of scientific or medical background. They're not, they're not people with the expertise to determine whether or not these things are uh, – what that price should be. Uh, so I would look at this as a from an Austrian e- economics point of view and say that every time the government gets involved in fixing the prices it distorts the the market it distorts the information that a price should communicate to the consumer So, so all of that is the sort of defense of big pharma from a free market point of view
0: Using the Austrian school of economics they it does admit Um, that this is not your typical supply and demand curve. This has something called inelastic demand, which means that no matter what, it's not no matter what, because no matter what is depicted by a perpendicular line, it's, it's not the, the typical supply and demand curves that you see, but it's more rigid is the demand curve is how I would describe it is because even if the price goes up, people will buy it because their lives depend on it. Unless you absolutely cannot afford it. Like insulin say is important for your survival. Or water is important for your survival. These things are necessities. Demand does not tend to shift too much for those things. I would also I would question your point on the the fact that they need to earn the money back because they have to pass tests, they have to go through research, they have to do all this stuff. Say that process took 20 years, then selling the drug at the end is it's I don't I don't even know how to articulate this that well, but it's not like this. How would they gain all of that money back after twenty years of development? Like, I'm I'm concerned about is there an incremental way for them to to keep the, like a cycle of funds almost so that you don't need to price your drug at like two hundred dollars a bottle at the end of the process to regain all of those funds that you spent for twenty years? And I know the, gov- the government does subsidize big pharma to some to some degree at in certain points in time. Am I right or no?
1: Uh I wouldn't call it a direct subsidy. They do a lot of big pharmaceutical companies do apply for and get government grants to study certain areas. So there is there is money going to these companies in some in some cases. What you do also have, I mean the the solution to what you're describing is called health insurance. Yeah. Because a typical health insurance plan will the consumer and this is again where this gets so messy because When I go to, um, I have a, I've got eczema on my fingers. I have a prescription cream that helps keep that at bay. When I go and um, get that from the pharmacy, it's about $180 for a really small tube of this stuff. No way. Well, but see, because of my insurance plan, I pay 20% of that. So every month, insurance, the cost, my contributions to my insurance plan are deducted from my paycheck. I never see it. Poof, it's gone. And, but then, so when I go in, I actually only pay $36 for that bottle of cream. So part of this, and this is why, again, like most of the issues that are discussed, I mean, we could have a great public forum or uh, policy debate on resolved big pharma companies should be federally regulated or should be, there should be a cap on the price of this kind of medication. We could have a solid debate about that. 90 seconds to articulate a position and a response is absurd. This that is, is complicated.
0: Insane. <laughs> yeah. I I again this is one of the areas like immigration I've read a, a good bit about and gun control I've had a debate on. You know, like some of these I have some experience with. Big pharma is not one of those, but the ethical concerns around around giving people medicine that basically keeps them alive. Pharmaceuticals is one of the biggest areas of interest for me, is what I would say. And I don't, I don't want it to be that it takes big pharma, you know, twenty years to develop this medicine, and now they're scrambling to recoup all their funds so they don't go under. So then prices are insane for everybody that has to buy the medication. But if you have health insurance, like you said, it helps solve the problem because you don't have to pay all of it. But it, I think, pharmaceuticals are unique in the fact that product development takes such a long time because it does have to pass a lot of tests, and it needs to, you need to make sure it's safe for people to you know, ingest it and into their bodies. So well, it's, it's such a weird thing because there's inelastic demand and product development takes a really long time. And I think that sort of messes up a lot of the regulation around that.
1: It does. And one other factor on the pharmaceutical side is that you've also got to account for the investment that is lost along the way. Because I don't know what the proportion is, but uh, there are plenty of strings or strands of medical investigation that you might spend 20 years on a product and then discer- and determine that this product was a waste of 20 years, but the company has spent all that money. So yeah, let's let's jump from this. The uh, the last big issue I think we definitely should hit is climate change. Because that's where yes, our debate ended last night. All right, so give me your thoughts on what, what 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 did people say that
0: stuck out to you about climate change, Ethan? Everybody was, at the end, everybody was really intent on making climate change one of their top priorities. Um, and I think, help me here, it may have been O'Rourke, or it may have been um, the, what's the New York governor's name? Like De Blasio. De Blasio. One of, I think one of those people said climate change was their number one priority. That was a voting issue that was Jay Inslee. The uh, he was the governor Inslee, of Washington right. State. Right. Okay. He was it. Him that sounded a little bit like Donald Trump. I don't know if if that if you caught that. I thought
1: that I thought De Blasio had more of that voice, but there's a there's kind of a distinctive New York voice. Uh, yeah. De Blasio and Trump are both definitely New Yorkers. You can tell from the way they speak.
0: Right. Let I guess. I'll, let me flip over the client the climate change thing. Um, in my flow. So yeah, this one lasted quite a while. It was, it was probably around the same length as the health insurance one was. Where, and it, it was one, definitely one of the hottest issues. What I completely caught from it was that everybody wanted to make, was making sure to tell the audience that this was one of their top priorities. And after all of the other issues, I feel like they saved it for last for a really good reason too, And, and as far as moderators go. But everyone wanted to make sure that the audience knew that this was their top priority was climate change. So that was the most interesting thing to me.
1: I thought earlier in the debate, um, Elizabeth Warren made a really interesting point. She was asked the question, are manufacturing jobs coming back? And she used that question to do two things. She first hated on corporations. And then she explained that there is the next big need is going to be for green tech at a global scale. Uh, and we and need to be
0: the first. We
1: do, and she predicted a twenty-three trillion dollar market that is coming. And climate change is her motivation to say that we have to retool. We have to do everything to move into this green tech world. Uh, Beto O'Rourke had. Uh, he also had a. He also had a huge bid on um, climate. Uh, his, his climate, he was asked about his climate policy specifically. And I think I sent you this one I don't know if you read it or not, but it, it is even less logical than AOC's green new deal.
0: It's, and he he said we need to like prevent the earth from getting two degrees Celsius hotter,
1: which that, that is the number that I've seen bandied around. I mean, that's, that's the point of no return that the, uh, the UN climate change scientist established, uh, about
0: a year ago. Oh, this is part of the UN.
1: Yeah. The, the two degrees thing. Yeah.
0: What's the United Nations doing with... Oh, I guess, yeah, because of the Paris thing and, like...
1: Well, the Paris Accord. It's an international and,
0: deal, so that makes sense.
1: Well, uh, goodness, almost a year ago, I think this was last August, there was a uh, United Nations Climate Change Summit and the, uh, in, in South Korea, and the scientists released a joint statement stating that we have 12 years to prevent irreversible climate change. And if we don't stop, if we don't do these, and they had a list of policy uh, suggestions that are impossible. Uh, but the, with the ending point of, if we don't do these, we're all going to die. So far, things have not really changed. But uh, I've
0: see, yeah, I've seen Prager U always, like one of their favorite little tricks is to post all these incorrect predictions about climate change and just put them next to each other for an, like right? a little clip. Yeah. So I think some of those possibly were from that or not. But it does seem like a lot of predictions are being thrown around it that the two degrees Celsius seems to be a, a popular statistic. And I'm wondering if that's going to happen or I mean, I, um, I do see Elizabeth Warren's prediction that there's a big, going to be a big market for for green technology. I can completely see that being true. Like, and that's probably that's an exciting thing to look forward to as well, because personally, I think electric cars are pretty cool. Like I've Tesla's on the road, they look awesome, and you get really great mileage. Um, I mean, if there's more of that coming, I'm not going to complain.
1: Elizabeth Warren is ready for uh, the United States to be the first producer of Tesla. She thinks there's going to be 30 million of those made in the next 10 years, and we need to be making them. So, I th- yeah, the climate change was for, for Inslee. Uh, he talked about this really being the hallmark of his, his of his presidency if he became president this would be his top priority and he at least claimed to be the one who is make the only one saying it would be the top priority and it's clearly yeah. something he's already prioritized in washington state what i and once again i know you you said this was not the point of the debate you're probably right i was missing specifics on proposals and what i what my my suspicion is uh, that what we have instead of specifics are a lot of vague, general, we must make climate change important without answering the key question of how and whether that's individual action on the part of the citizens or whether that's collective action somehow through governmental
0: fiat of some sort. Do you think, do you think that if they went into the how that people would care? I think it at least it, it, I, I would. I
1: would no. I would care. I'm completely there. I would be much more interested in knowing. Are you talking about me consuming fifteen percent less water? Because there are things that I can do. I could shower every other day instead of each morning. That would reduce my water consumption by uh, maybe let's fifty percent. Nah, probably not fifty percent. Because I do drink water and we flush the toilet. So let's say, but that would reduce water consumption. Let's say conservatively twenty percent if I did that. Because we also use the, uh, the washing machine. That's another big okay. use of water. So that's something that I can do. And that's something that I could I could conceivably see a nation accepting, okay, for the good of the planet, we will all take this action. And again, not everybody's going to do it, but enough people would do, could do that to affect some change. But if, on the other hand, we're talking about we need a to uh, really invigorate the Environmental Protection Agency and we need to pass new laws and we need to rip apart every existing building to rewire it with eco-friendly technology, those are not feasible.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm – okay, so as far as water consumption and those kinds of things go, I'm looking less to those areas, but I'm really excited to see what kind of um, – green technology is going to come about. I already said the Teslas, but solar panels I think are or have you seen Elon Musk's actually solar roofing? He has tiles that like the shingles on your roof are so all solar panels. Oh yeah. and it showed like a model of a house that and the solar panels charges a car cuz it's a Tesla obviously and it just they look really nice. You can get all these different <laughs> colors and designs. But I think it would be really exciting if if greener energy, or I guess you could say renewable energy was more common throughout the market because that drives down costs for all of our businesses. They save tons of money. Like they can pay people to do more things. They can invest in their products. I can't imagine all the consumer benefits of, of companies like saving money as they learn to use less energy. I'm not saying that should be mandated by law, but I'm excited to see how much money can be saved and perhaps how much more money can be saved like in the competitive market when you're pricing products. Sure. Like, hey, we save this much money on energy. Like Now we can sell our products for less money and we'll sell even more.
1: But I think, Ethan, I think you've hit on the crux of the matter. I mean, is is that something that companies do because they see a profit increase or a savings increase by doing that? Or is it something that is required to do and is mandated from a central planning agency? And the, the difference there is that I think the difference between success and failure. If companies decide, if Amazon decides, you know what? It's going to actually reduce our. It's going to reduce our cost by two percent if we rebuild every Amazon packaging plant to have solar panelled roofs and uh, and then wire our electricity to come from our solar panels rather than be on the local grid. And then they go do that. In contrast to passing a plan through Congress that's signed by one of these people as a president, and then uh, it it's just very poorly organized and managed. And it becomes that, sort of yeah. the the DMV version of of uh, of green technology. I don't see that being successful long term.
0: I've I think that right now there isn't much of an incentive to use renewable energy, and I don't think the government has to do anything about that because as as renewable energy gets better, companies are of course going to want to invest in maybe solar panels or like this different type of energy because it's going to save them a ton of money, and that's really exciting. But if it doesn't happen immediately. I don't think we're doomed. That's where I'm at.
1: Well, we've had a, this is uh, coming up on, this is going to be more than 90 minutes by the time we're done for this episode. Uh, let, let's start wrapping this up with, uh, Ethan, if you had to pick, uh, in, any last comments you have about this debate, then I've got some I want to give out, but any last comments you have about this debate?
0: One was prosecuting Trump after he's out of office. was interesting. It was like a very, <laughs> very small part of like, that that doesn't seem that important um or that was talked about for like three minutes at least and as far as this debate goes it was it it was an effort to win people over into it basically it's like a public effort to introduce yourself as a potential candidate and i think this is also an effective way to filter some people out like tim ryan i know i'm really like having like just roasting him right now but i don't think he's going to get that many votes it's a time to establish yourself and establish your viewpoint so that people are familiar with these things. I think these debates are important, um, and they're exciting to watch. It's just a good way to get to know what you've got or what you're working with as far as voting goes. But as far as comparing it to competitive debate goes, it's not real debate. It shouldn't, I don't know if it should be called a debate. I don't know what other <laughs> word you would use. But, again, it's more of like an introduction of, of different people. Real debate is constructives evidence rebuttals and un- having a pretty comprehensive understanding of the arguments that you're putting forth and not just using generalized arguments that people are pretty much decided that they're going to go, go for this or not for this. And it, it's not a debate, but I think it's worth watching.
1: I think that's, that's eminently fair. And, uh, I, I, it's still called a debate. I think it's got some validity as a debate, uh, cause we did get, you do have people who are all discussing similar issues But the stated goal of NBC in hosting this was to help the audience see what the the moderator called the daylight between these candidates. Where is the space between these candidates? How do you know? Where's the clash between them? So there's a sort of debate, but it's very popular, it's very public, and it's not anything really near what competitive debate does. One of the most interesting things, I mentioned this at the end of the episode, I was fascinated by uh, Bill de Blasio's statement about the identity of the Democratic Party. Because whether you're in the Democratic Party or out of it or independent or Republican or Green Party or Democratic Socialist, take your pick. What we have on display in these debates are 20 people who are all leaders in the Democratic Party, whether that's in Ohio, whether that's on a national scale, whether that's in New York City a... Uh, Take, take the scale where you will. We've got all these leaders. They each have a vision for what their party is, and they're trying to bring the party closer into alignment with their vision. I think we had really two different visions going on. Uh, and de Blasio ended in his final speech. He stated that this was uh, the fight for the heart and soul of our party. On the one hand, you've got folks like de Blasio, like... Uh, Amy Klobuchar, like Tim Ryan, like John Delaney, like Tulsi uh, Gabbard, and like Jay Inslee, who really are fighting for a pretty traditional Democratic platform. They may have a couple issues that they're a bit more uh, leaning on the left than, than previous generations have been, but they are, they're pretty traditional Democrats. But then on the other hand, you've got Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, Beto O'Rourke, and Cory Booker all of whom in various places are far more radical, and they are looking for way more redistribution of resources. They're looking for extension of uh, of social wins the Democratic Party has had in recent decades. They're looking for really a total victory. Um, at one point, uh, I think it was, it was either Julian Castro or Cory Booker was asked... Um, What will you do? Uh, It was there was a lot of discussion that we haven't gotten to about uh, what do you do if Mitch McConnell is still the Senate Majority Leader and you are the President, and one of the things that those that these folks were all looking for. Particularly, uh, Cory Booker, Julian Castro, and Elizabeth Warren, they're all looking to have a Democratic president, Democratic house, and Democratic judiciary. They are looking for a total victory so that they can remake American law into the image of their party, and really into the image of themselves. So they're not looking, which I think is really interesting... Um, Amy Klobuchar strikes me as somebody who would be willing to work across the aisle. She would be willing to work a deal. Uh, She talked about that, how she's been the lead signature or lead name on over 100 different bills because she works together with her opposition. But these more radical Democrats, these folks who look a lot more like the young Justice Democrats, uh, like AOC, and like uh, they they apparently have one more Justice Democrat who's looking favorable to win another position in uh, New York City. But they look a lot more like that. Right now we've got this war for what exactly is the Democratic Party going to be all about. And I think it's really interesting to see that on display and to see some of the polarities and some of the division about where are we as a country. It's on display here in these debates. Now, Ethan, last thing, we really should wrap this up. Uh, who do you think was the one person last night who was the most impressive, who you think, if these 10 were, were competing for the nomination, based on last night's debates, who do you think would win that nomination?
0: Who would win it? So I'll say who I would think would win the nomination, not who I would pick right. for the nomination. Okay. Huh. Interesting question. I I think... Mm. You might have to cut out this silence. That's okay. all right. Isn't I'll edit up? it. Don't worry. All right. Man. Booker was too radical. He was like, he was just too like, like, Ugh, like that. Like his face is like, <laughs> it's like <all> right. <laughs> um, I think none of the reasonable people will win. Um, Gabbard was too quiet, even though she, not too much, but a little too, a little too quiet. It's going to be, um, Klob- Klobuchar. Uh, I'm going to say this sentence over again so we could cut that all of that thinking out. I think the most influential or uh, a nominee would either be Klobuchar or maybe Elizabeth Warren, depending on, like, you know. Like, she was very influential and she spoke probably the most out of anyone. Um, but I think some people were just too quiet and didn't stand up for themselves enough. I think O'Rourke gained some support, but he was just a little bit vague with everything he was saying my personal favorite was probably castro i think he i think it was good that he did his research it's good that he knows his facts um that he i I don't know i I was impressed with the way he spoke so i I think he's reasonable as well but i think as far as most influential goes i would be picked as the nominee would probably be elizabeth Warren or klobuchar i would
1: agree with you there i think on uh actually both of those picks when klobuchar or warren Uh, I really, well, my ultimate vote is probably going to go with Elizabeth Warren as the person who came out looking the best at the end of this debate. I was really intrigued by the final speeches because they each got, I think, 45 seconds to make a final speech and talk about a clincher. I mean, what do you, what do you do in 45 seconds to try to win the round? Well, Elizabeth Warren had the first speech and she had the last speech in the entire debate. And you know how powerful that placement is in a, in a debate round, but In her final speech, she talked, she opened with describing how as a girl, her dream was to be a public school teacher, but that dream was out of reach for her because her family didn't have the resources for her to go to college. And she ended up getting a federal, getting federal assistance to help her go to a commuter school for, I think she said $50 a month is what she got. And that somehow paid for college, which seems unfathomable to me, but once upon a time, uh, and, and really, she closed with a dream. She closed with a story and a vision. Uh, and she's describing a, a world where the government, the economy, and the country can work for all. And then she made us a promise. She said, I will fight for you like I fight for my family. And she took this very impersonal political debate and suddenly, with all the finesse of an excellent speaker, and I should of course give credit where credit is due, Elizabeth Warren was a, a NSDA speaker in in high school. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She she what? was yeah. No what? Oh yeah, the uh, the the uh, New York City Urban Debate League has been reposting this article like over the last two weeks, all about how oh, Elizabeth gosh. Warren she cut her chops speaking on the speech circuit once upon a time, all that stuff. Well, with all of the pathos there done really well, I think Elizabeth Warren reached right into the heart of America and captured the heart. At the same time, she is the most radical person on that stage. She's right there with Bernie Sanders, which for strategy wise, if the Democratic Party is going to beat Donald Trump, they need to have somebody who is rhetorically as extreme as Donald Trump. And Elizabeth Warren may very well be that candidate.
0: Didn't think of that, but you're completely correct. Like you, you don't need to just win the minds of the people in some cases, even more so you need to win the hearts of the people. And if, if anyone could do it, it's Trump and it's Elizabeth Warren. Well,
1: with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for this special summer episode of what's the res. Uh, we'll be back in August with more of our normal episodes doing resolution analysis as our team is gearing up for competition in 2019, 2020. Uh, In the meantime, be on the lookout. Uh, In uh, in about a week, we're going to be releasing a whole new stream of premium content, where uh, if you follow us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, or Reddit, or like our Facebook page, you'll see all the information about how to access that content. We're unveiling a whole bunch of live debate episodes recorded between adults. And uh, you can access those for $1 a month subscription. And then uh, Ethan's been putting together analysis episodes to give you the debater's perspective on those debates. Uh, so if you watched the Democratic debate and you were a little frustrated at how non-debate-like it really was, come check out our content. We promise it's actual debate. Uh, though it is, it's real debate by real people. These are not experts in the field, uh, but they are all ed- educated people who are debating about important issues for our common good. So if you like what you've heard today, uh, we'd encourage you to find our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. Uh, that's still the best way for people to find us. If you want to check out our website, you can do that at Uh do, do wish Ethan and uh, four of his friends luck, because uh, next week, the first week of July, they'll be up in Vermont debating at the Coolidge Cup. Uh Ethan, any final words for our audience?
0: I just wanna say that I really enjoyed the Democratic debates. I think it was a really cool thing to watch. I'm definitely gonna watch round two of these. And um, just to close out, I think debate is an extremely important thing, but not only debate, but understanding the topics that you're debating about. And, And like you said, educated, I think you don't need to be an expert in the field to be able to debate something. You need to be an educated person that's able to use reason and rationality and articulate your opinion well. And that's what's so special about debate is that debate can be for everyone. It's an educational game, but it's a really important educational game that I'm really glad What's the Res is able to spread throughout as far as we can reach. So I love debate. And yeah, it's just a really special thing. So that's where I'm going to close. All right. Until next time, listeners, work hard,
1: speak well, and seek truth.